Welcome to the Rodcast. I'm your host, Dr. Rod. So my guest today is specialized in internal medicine, uh, but also studied international health and tropical medicine. His work has taken him across the globe where he's done some uh, interesting stuff, which I'm sure we'll get into today. Uh, at the moment, he's focusing a lot of his efforts on uh, migrant health. Uh, it's my honor to welcome today Dr. Carl Butchner. Carl, welcome to the broadcast. Thank you very much, Rob, uh, for the kind words and introduction. I'm happy to be here with you. So um, I know you've worked on different international health initiatives ranging from sort of infectious disease. I remember at one point you were, was it a hepatology you were involved mm -hmm. in? Maybe yeah. this was many, many moons ago. Mm -hmm. um, tell us a little bit about what you're, you're doing today in terms of uh, migrant health and, and your... Yes, so um, my professional relationship with the field of migrant health began about six, seven years ago. Um, were through um, projects for different medical NGOs. I was coordinating some interventions targeting uh, refugees and migrants, particularly in the European context. Um, in parallel, I have uh, started being more and more interested uh, also academically in this field. This particular field also exhibits some close ties with other fields I've worked in the past, like neglected tropical diseases or other infectious diseases. So uh, it's a very timely and very challenging field of global health. I'm sure we will have the chance to elaborate why later on. When you talk about migrant health, what, is, what does that mean? And how, how is it different, uh, you know, in, when, when we speak of, I guess, population health in, in general? So migrant health uh, indeed is not different to uh, public or global health. It's, it's global or public health focusing on this very particular uh, population group. Nevertheless, because this group exhibits some very unique features, it is definitely not different discipline per se, but uh, I would say a subspecialization within uh, public or global health. We should not forget that this population is quite unique in terms of how mobile it is, how often within this subpopulation the uh, legal status of a person throughout his life trajectory might change and this has implications then to access to health, uh, to health entitlements. But also affiliation of these persons throughout their years with different, perhaps, national health systems. So you're correct, it's not that different. It's not a, a discipline per se. It is 
public health if you look at the the country level or global health if you look at the international level however because this uh, population has some characteristics that differ a lot from the native population it is adequate academically and also in public health terms to look through a specific lens on this population so you're in in uh, Greece today and Greece I imagine um, like a few countries uh, in southern Europe it is a focal point of sort of migrant health uh, because people coming in from from uh, different parts of the world for for various reasons I mean wh how does that impact I'd say the local country when you're receiving folks from from a different part of the world from from a health lens from a health lens the the challenge is both on the system side but also on the side of uh, the migrants and refugees arriving in the new host country uh, from the system side is that you do not have um, yet health systems that are adapted to the different health needs these persons might have they're not adapted to their epidemiological profile they're not adapted to uh, culturally to um, cater for persons that might come from a very different cultural background and have a very different understanding of, of, of health per se and disease it is of course continuing on the on the health system side a huge financial challenge as well because particularly the refugee population is characterized by multimorbidity uh, and uh, a very high um, significantly high burden of mental health diseases as well so there are on the system side many many challenges that uh, health systems like the greek one which was never really really familiar with um, dealing with migrant populations or integrating migrant populations has huge problems in addressing and on the other side on the person on the on the patient side you have the challenges of low health literacy but also people coming originally sometimes for from countries where there is no function in health system so navigating through a structured health system is very very challenging for them you have changing health needs based on the and health behaviors based on the phase of the migration process these people uh, are in uh, we know from literature for example that during the movement phase the only uh, really health issues migrants and refugees will try to address in the health system of the transit country or the host country are really emergencies that would pose an obstacle to uh, moving to completing the movement phase while during the arrival and integration phase you have other health problems um, emerging this of course does not mean that these did not pre-exist but they were just neglected or people could not afford having them addressed at the movement phase so it is a very very 
different landscape if you look at both from the behavior of the patient as well as the uh, capacities and uh, potential response from the from the system side then when you look at a native population or let's say a more settled population and and who who pays for the healthcare well the the, the problem is that you know the health entitlements at every step of the migration process is linked to the legal status a person has and the local laws or the laws of the, of the region if we take the european region as a um, political entity uh, so just to give you an example the very first access you have as a um, freshly arrived refugee would be linked to your status as an asylum seeker once you are through the process of um, submitting your your asylum request then automatically you are entitled to some uh, to 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 health care um, the, the extent of which varies a lot from unfortunately from country to country and most of the times it's <clears throat> quite more limited than the entitlements the national population the native population has but having said that it means that before you have this legal status of an asylum seeker or of a recognized migrant or a recognized refugee you're in this void in this legal void where actually you are you have access actually only to emergency services and if you take into account with the particularly with refugees we're talking about people coming from war-torn contexts having a very very difficult journey behind them they have immense health needs from day one but they they have some sort of access to the health system once their bureaucratic let's say application process is advanced to the stage that they're granted the asylum seeking status which sometimes takes months or in in worst cases it might take even a year so you have people being in this limbo situation and actually excluded from secondary tertiary healthcare or preventive services uh, with the exception of emergency i guess those timelines probably vary country to country and can be probably even longer in some countries i want to get back to the mental health aspect but before that i have a question that i don't think anybody's ever been able to answer me um see if you have the answer to this one what is the difference between a migrant and an expat <laughs> uh, good question uh, um i i haven't uh, looked up if there is literature to be honest on that but my intuitively i would say you use the term expat for somebody coming from a high income country that is either working or residing in a high income country or low and middle income country and most of the times migration um is taking place from low and middle income countries to higher income countries but you know i don't 
think there is also a very clear and official definition of that. And just an asterisk, it, when we talk about migrant health, for example, to, to, to show you how complex the, the field of migrant health is, another subpopulation which um, health-wise shows a lot of parallels to uh, international migrants are in-country migrants coming from rural areas to urban areas. And in low, in particular in middle-income countries in the last 30, 40 years, you had massive uh, population shifts from rural to urban um, uh, settings. And we know that this is somehow, from, from the health perspective, this might have uh, similar consequences or similar phenomena, epidemiological phenomena can be observed as with international migrants coming from low and middle income countries to higher income countries. So just to give you the, the, the whole spectrum of uh, what migrant health deals with and how complex the, the phenomena we're dealing with might be. It reminded me when you mentioned migration from rural to urban where you see for instance the effects of that is say on overweight obesity chronic diseases um, because you have different diets you do less exercise because you have public transport um, mental health is just a whole another another one but um, I'm interested to hear your your thoughts on what the observed effects have been with uh, migrant populations. Say you, you take a group of people from South Sudan uh, and then they arrive and they're in Greece, you know, the next week. How does that, first of all, how does that affect the sort of the chronic disease profile over time? Has there any, been anything studied on that? And then secondly, what 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 is in place sort of today or is there anything in place to sort of help that or ease that transition yeah so in that particular example you have two main challenges i would say uh, first of all we should not forget that even in low income countries uh, we have a silent epidemic of ncds going on so Within this group that is um, undertaking these very risky journeys, uh, you, you might increasingly have also younger or middle-aged uh, people with at least one chronic disease. And of course, the challenge here is that uh, these are not straightforward journeys from A to B with a concrete timeline. So whatever provisions people make to maintain their treatment, to stay on treatment, to adhere to the treatment they might have, uh, normally that is not uh, achieved. And so you have a major disruption of um, treatment of chronic disease. We see that very often uh, in newly arrived uh, migrants and refugees. Uh, the second thing is that, um, of course, you have the at the at the um, uh, when the arrival phase starts and people start 
settling down in the host country. Sometimes it's the very first uh, time where a mental issue will emerge or uh, post-traumatic stress disorders will manifest because during the journey that people are so preoccupied with surviving and uh, making it to their destination or to the transit countries so that there is let's say no no time and no luxury for the post-traumatic stress disorder to manifest so we have in newly arrived um uh Typically, in newly arrived refugees and migrants, after some months, a, a massive deterioration of their mental health. Um, of course, this is a multifactorial, uh, has a multifactorial genesis, but one of the sources is that the stress, the toxic level of stress accumulated in the period before and the uh, trauma they were exposed in the country of origin or during the journey was not really uh, digested and was not uh, hasn't they didn't have the luxury to to you know uh, uh, let themselves manifest these 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 mental health issues and on the long term, you have what we see more and more also in uh, in-country migrants from rural to urban areas, this early late life mismatch, which currently know also from the um, from classical epidemiology that it it might be a major risk factor for manifestation of many, many cardiometabolic diseases, particularly around the, the 40s, 50s, 60s of a person. So I would say these are intrinsic epidemiological risk factors this, this group exhibits, particularly if you take people from very poor settings from low-income countries like South Sudan, you mentioned, uh, coming to a European setting. And going back to point on mental health, I mean, if you look at the availability of services globally, even even in developed, you know, in, in the high income countries, the supply does not match the the demand. And so, I mean, it's the situation is is you know even more dire in in. Um, in places uh, like sub-Saharan Africa. I remember I read last week that there's there's actually 13 uh, psychiatrists for the whole country in Mozambique that, you know, today has a has a conflict uh, in the north. Um, if, if we look at the type of efforts provided by the organizations you've worked with uh, for migrant health, I mean, I imagine that that's, that's also present there in terms of a, a, a lack of specialist uh, to deal with that. I mean, what has been plan moving forward to to deal with like the rising in these uh, types of, of services that are required? Because I imagine that if we're seeing it in the general population in terms of anxiety, depression, PTSD uh, going up, and you know, it's been shown in Lancet studies that uh, <clears throat> most of countries are are expressing increases in mental health related cases i'm sure we're going to see it you know in, in these populations as well so what what's sort of the, the plan moving forward 
That's a very good question. And uh, to be frank, I don't think that uh, health policy in developing countries is taking this seriously because um, the mental health uh, crisis, I would say, uh, among this population has seems to have also a transgenerational aspect, meaning it's sort of inherited to the first and second then generation after after the arrival. One particular, I think, challenge for all of us in the field, all the health workers, all the health professionals, mental health professionals, we feel really helpless with is that there is a linear uh, association, a direct association between the mental health status of the person and his, her legal status, for which we cannot do much. And so you have people being stabilized um, through health interventions as they have the status, for example, of of asylum seeker or, or a temporary migrant with a working permit and once this changes the, once they lose this status um, and they either have their asylum rejected or they have they don't have their working permit renewed you have a full-blown relapse and deterioration of the mental health state and you know sure you can treat the the symptom but you cannot treat the cause for which this person uh, experiences uh, this mental health deterioration and we should keep in mind that many of these people throughout their life trajectories have so often changed legal statuses that you know it's an ongoing fight with predicting the next mental health uh, relapse they, they're gonna have so i don't have a sorry i don't have a, a really good suggestion but it's i i can only share how frustrating this is for health workers for uh, ngo workers on the field that you know we, we we see that whatever you do there are policy related issues migration policy related issues that impact much more actually on people's health than uh, the health-related policy, let's say. Yeah, I hadn't even thought of the intergenerational uh, aspect, but um, you're, you're right. It, the first time I realized that was a thing was when, when I moved to Berlin, where I remember you and others talking about individuals that you know their parents had been in in the war or the grandparents and how they still had you know signs mm. uh, and symptoms of of that effect from a mental health uh, aspect which i i didn't even know was was a thing so yeah i mean if cumulatively it's it sounds like there's a lot of going to be a lot of a lot of demand for for services i wanted to ask you another question in terms of so as a doctor you know you're when you when you're with a patient of course there's an element of empathy involved but you know you, you you try to be as objective as possible and you look at you know the the signs symptoms medical history but uh, and of course you try to take into consideration sort of i guess non-medical elements when you're asking these questions in the context that the person is is in 
but I imagine that that uh, these individuals that that ability as a doctor is even more important to contextualize their personal situation beyond the medical elements of what you're seeing and think uh, okay this is what this person is is feeling this is what they've gone through it's not reflecting necessarily in in what I'm seeing in the charts but it's such an important part of their health being in a new country where they're unfamiliar with their surroundings mm. um, it, it even reminds me of I remember a, a great story you told once when you were at the I think it was you were working at the National Institute of, of Health in the US you went to do like a research stint was it the National Institute of NIH yes 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 for an elective yes and I remember you telling a story where you you uh, were in I can't remember which city but nobody had ever seen a Greek person before uh -huh. and they were they were knocking on your door just to see what you looked like <laughs> yeah. because word had gotten around yeah, that yeah. you were uh, yeah there was a Greek in town I mean I can imagine you know that's one scenario but I can imagine the other scenario where this person coming from a war-torn country is is also not immediately recognized as you know uh, just a, another citizen another person in the general population and and that has to probably affect them at some some level from a health perspective as, as well i mean what is the the training that uh, these clinicians have in terms of how they're used to uh, practicing medicine and how they practice how they were trained and what skills do they then need to learn that are probably more soft skills when seeing migrants in, in the healthcare setting? Yes, uh, that's a good question. And although I would say cultural training and, you know, training in general for health workers dealing with, um, with migrants and refugees, you will see that as a, a bullet point in all migrant health policy documents and suggestions and recommendations of WHO and other organizations. To be frank, there is no standardized curriculum of what that entails. Uh, what I can tell you from experience is a, a huge, um, let's say, um, neglected aspect that is very very essential though when working with migrants and refugees is uh, which we definitely lack training in um, to my knowledge it's not part of any any medical school curriculum yet even in, in countries where uh, interpretation services are officially part of the national health system is exactly that, working with a translator, working with an interpreter during the consultation. Because that shifts a lot the dynamics of a classical uh, patient-doctor relationship. You know, you have suddenly a third party who, you know, it's a human being. It's not just that there is somebody uh, uh, automatic it's not an avatar automatically translating what you're saying to uh 
to the, the, the patient. It's somebody who is filtering, who is interpreting as well, who, you know, might have also his deficiencies or strengths in understanding the context. Um, so this is a very, very unique and challenging um, element in migrant health. The other one I would say is more generally being able to to grasp also non-health related needs of a person and how these needs might affect his health but also have a basic knowledge or where these needs and by whom they can be addressed so very often the consultation does not only contain you know information or uh, does not evolve around only health issues but housing um, livelihood uh, people asking you of where how they they can enroll their children in school etc because these are pressing matters for the people at the consultation and we should not forget that these people most of the times it's not that they just have a limited or more limited access to to health in general they have a more limited access to social welfare in general or they're not aware of how social welfare uh, functions in the country they're residing currently so you are uh, often in a role that is much broader than the classical role of a doctor. And if I may, just to point this out, we had, a, we looked at the statistics, for example, of a clinic, an MSF clinic specialized on migrants and refugees. And we saw that the, the and it was an interdisciplinary clinic, of course. We have doctors, we have mental health professionals, but we had also social workers. And interestingly, the the appointments uh, with the less dropouts or missed appointments by the beneficiaries were the ones with a social worker. And the most frequent referrals happening were also from uh, doctors. One of the most frequent referrals, internal referrals in the in the team were from the doctor to the social worker so um that shows that you know migrant health is a much more interdisciplinary approach to to medicine let's say or or it requires a much more interdisciplinary uh, approach exactly because the social determinants of health are so evident and might have such an intense impact on on people's health that you you can't ignore them. You, you you can't even start working on the health issues of a person that is uh, sans papier, that is uh, undocumented. And and how do those clinics work? Did did you have the doctor that might see them for you know diabetes, blood pressure, and then immediately next door you'd have mental health or social service, or or were, did they have to did they have to go somewhere else? Most of the clinics uh, you have a take-in uh, were obligatory 
the the social worker must be present or he's leading the actually the the sort of the intake of the patient um and he's trying to filter and prioritize the, the needs of the person and then starts referring uh, this person to the other uh, professions if necessary so it's really of of uh, of the utmost importance to have in these clinics social workers working because uh, they are the ones that have the best understanding of the of the of the situation of the, all the social determinants uh, of health of this person and may actually also uh, support him or try to resolve uh, one and or another. Um, so I would say that the doctor per se, if the project is not um, working particularly if it's not somehow working in parallel to the to the health system to the official health system uh, meaning having its own stock of medicines having some sort of referral routes uh, in the private sector etc um, the doctor is very limited with a person that um, has no legal status right now has no um, official entitlements health entitlements etc an issue not only in that setting but in in many settings where i think the ability to refer to social determinants something that addresses the social determinants of health is not necessarily baked in to the healthcare system as well as it, it should um i know what from from a medical perspective there are certain patients or certain instances, individuals that, that um, really stick with you uh, throughout the years and they, you know, sometimes change your perspective on life or teach you something. Is, is there any sort of stories or any instances that, that come to, to mind of a particular case that is, is really stuck with you in, in all your work? Well, I recall um, vividly a um, single parent, a, a, a father uh, from Iraq with his nine-year-old daughter. Um, they came on their own. I, don't, I never understood or never also inquired what happened to the mother. Um, the father was, had diabetes type 1 and um, during his journey, of course, uh, he had a massive deterioration of his, uh, of his uh, disease. Uh, he, when he first was admitted to our clinic, he was in a very bad shape, uh, underweight. They were homeless. They had no, no legal status, etc. And I remember how I had to examine the father, and you know, I took the father inside in my room, and the little girl stayed in the in the aisle of the clinic, and she started screaming, shouting. She was crying. It was very, very difficult for the nurses to, you know, um, calm her down, and uh, she she had a massive you know, attachment and dependency on, on, on her father, which was totally normal, of course, but uh, 
even more under these circumstances. And I recall had seeing them six months later when you know we had um, the the diabetes one under good treatment. The we had found housing for them. They were official asylum seekers. The girl. Um, went to school and I saw a transformed girl in front of me who was absolutely fine sitting alone and was happy and cheerful and she was drawing and you know it's nothing um, I could think of other much more let's say uh, exotic stories I don't know it's nothing really but it was very touching for me because, you know, I saw the improvement in social determinants of health of this small family being reflected to the uh, to the behavior of a, of a nine-year-old child. And I saw it very, very, it was very evident, very clear uh, that if you try to address some things and not, it wasn't perfect, of course, the situation wasn't perfect, but they weren't in that despair they were before. And if you do something for these people, uh, not only health-wise, you know, they have the strength of uh, taking care of themselves and uh, fighting for their lives and uh, improving on their own their, their, mm. their life quality was it was and and what was what was the the follow-up period in between the two visits it was a much more frequent but i realized when i saw the girl again six months later you know i could tell the difference um of course the father we were seeing him at the beginning every two weeks mm. wow that's uh no that is a, a great a great story um I, I think especially, well, you and I, that, you know, we, we also do public health. You, you never see the impacts uh, of, of a lot of the work you do because it's impacts that will translate 10 years down, down the line. And even with clinical medicine, especially, you know, internal medicine, your specialty, you'll diagnose a patient, put them on treatment, and then follow up, you know, weeks after, and you still won't see that immediate um, impact like you might do if you know you're a surgeon. Or so, yeah, I I can understand how that's that uh, made an impact. I remember seeing that in in um, in medical school when I was uh, doing mental health uh, psychiatry, and there was um, she was 11 years old, and you know those mental health those psychiatry. Um, personal histories you do they're like a week long because they're you know gazillion questions um compared to you know say a, a heart consultation so we we saw this this girl with her mother every day of the week for an entire week and she she couldn't talk she was she was bipolar but she she'd lost the ability to speak to uh, make eye contact um, she was completely dysfunctional and then we saw her on the Monday and she'd be put on lithium treatment and it was like seeing a completely different person I mean she was telling stories and drawing and 
and I thought I've never seen anything this drastic in my life. Um, but uh, but yeah, unfortunately, psychiatrists, as you know, is is usually not that straightforward when uh, when applying treatments. Um, I don't want to keep you too long, and I want to ask you one one last question. So, in the last um, twelve months. Uh, <clears throat> Has there been anything that you've come across in terms of um, something that you've read, a new ideology, a new practice uh, that's made a, a, a significant change in your uh, health that you, you would uh, share and, and recommend to others? To my health as a person? <laughs> yeah, to your health, yeah. To my health? Okay. Uh... That, that's a very philosophical question how you put it. Uh, there, it could be there, anything. It could be anything. Any, even if you you read something, you say, oh, I'm going to try that. And then you, you saw that it made an impact or even a mindset or, you know. Yeah, I, I, that, that hasn't, has nothing to do with migrant health now. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, what I recently reading more and more about is uh, uh, Eastern philosophies like Taoism, Zen Buddhism, etc. And I, I think in the West we have a very distorted picture of these uh, philosophies and what I really appreciated is how practical they are. They're, they're mm. very, very um, in comparison to in contrast, let's say, to, to Western philosophical texts, they're very easy to, to read and grasp. And most of the times they're, they're actually like written like poems. And uh, what yeah, that, that, me, doesn't, that doesn't sound like Kant or Schopenhauer. No, exactly. <laughs> and what struck me is how, how effective some of these messages could be um, in psychology as well, in you know, giving these tools to people to um, deal in a very different way with their stress or their uh, anxiety or their depression. Uh, so I really appreciated the the practical aspects of uh, these philosophies. It's um, it's amazing how some of the principles and um, to some extent I try to adopt them in my personal life, uh, how much they, they impact your, your mental state. And um, yeah, this, for example, indeed was something I've learned and I think it had a positive health effect on me. <laughs> well, I, I can't, being as you're Greek, I can't um, not... Uh, ask you this. I mean, what what was the what was the influence on the on on the say pre-Socratic Greeks, if if any? I mean, are there any elements there that you you can see of uh, Eastern philosophy? Because it seems like at some point they just completely went into a different direction from, as you say, like pragmatism very practical elements that we see today to, um, yeah, you know, this 
theoretical eventually getting into this intellectual masturbation and mushrooms and all this stuff was it was is there any like peppered elements uh, what that's an interesting question what i was fascinated with is how close these eastern philosophies mm. are to stoicism stoicism is a, a branch let's say of the classic philosophy of the late classics uh, and there were all some romans that were uh, actually the uh, seneca and mark Aurel, the, the emperor were uh, stoic philosophers and what they have very much in common is you know this sense of let's stop pretending that we can control things and actually what you can control is your reactions is your uh, state of mind, how you deal with fortune or misfortune that is happening. And and that's very close to the Eastern philosophies. Um, and it starts from this very basic acknowledgement that, you know, we're not omnipotent as human beings. We are, um, things will happen to us, to our lives that we can can't control and which is a principle that is um, I would say on the opposite pole of what we believe nowadays that we control nature we we are on top of things uh, we have all these wonderful master plans and etc and then one <laughs> COVID uh, pandemic happens yeah. and everything is ruined and we understand how fragile our, our whole construct, our whole um, cognitive also superiority is. Um, and yeah, these two, um, I would say these stoicism is where the West meets the East uh, in philosophical terms. And that was also a revelation for me because I, I was aware of the stoics and it was something, a philosophical school I always liked a lot. Um, but yeah, if you if you study them, there, there are a mm. lot of things. Super about. interesting. Well, great. Well, thanks a lot, Carl. That was uh, enlightening as, as always, speaking to you. And um, hopefully we'll do it again soon in person. Sure, Rod. Yes, let's do it. Let's... Uh, talk about these things over beers <laughs> yeah yeah exactly okay all right hey thanks for listening folks if you enjoyed that please hit subscribe like and share see you next time